We are studying 1 Peter. This is the first uh, sort of letter that is sort of preserved for generations to come. That was written by this famous son of Jonah, this fisherman, this guy whose birth name was Simon. And uh, we spent the, uh, the first talk sort of looking at the peaks and troughs of his life. Because of all the characters in the Bible, he must be one of the most fascinating. He has some real peak moments. You know, he's there on the mountaintop when he sees something of Jesus' glory. He confesses him as sort of son of God and Messiah. He sees the resurrected Lord, but he also gets rebuked as being Satan by Jesus. So there, there are some low points. He denies Jesus three times, and he doesn't always get it right, which is really reassuring for those of us who are imperfect in our walk with Christ. Uh, Last week, we spent an entire hour looking at the very first verse of 1 Peter. It does not bode well for getting this letter overdone quickly, but I make no apologies for that. We looked at the importance of the term apostle. You will find um, that Jesus takes 12 of his disciples, and he makes them apostles. It's a special designation that these guys get, and it's important for the teaching and for orthodoxy, which is kind of right-thinking, correct truth, and for what books in the Bible are preserved. And we also looked at alien status. You know, this is not our home. Um, While uh, uh, we are kind of pilgrims traveling through life, and it's not all about what we can get, but it's about living for Christ now because we have an eternity to look forward to. Does that sound about right? Is that what some of you heard last couple of weeks? Is that about right? Is that what some of you heard? Excellent. You're a tough crowd sometimes. So today we are going to spend a whole load of time in the second verse. So Um, If you're looking to sort of get through this quickly and move on to something new, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, But Peter uh, lends himself to something that's really, really important, the nature of God's existence. I wonder if you've ever thought, what is God like? What is his true nature? How are we supposed to relate to him? And uh, Peter gives us a bit of insight by um, what he says. So if you've got a Bible, turn to... First uh, Peter chapter one verse two. So it says this: uh, We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. It's really nice greeting at the start, isn't it? Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And it seems that these guys, uh, both Paul and Peter, took over uh, a a sort of first century normal greeting and then Christianized it and made it uh, something a little bit more beautiful, which I always like doing when Christians take something uh, that's kicking around and then make it a little bit more beautiful and, and, and bring something of Jesus into it. So... I don't know if you know anything of your church history, possibly outside of, uh, of Scripture, but tradition suggests that the Apostle Peter, whose book we are looking at, and the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the uh, New Testament, it seems to me, it generally seems that they um, sought out Rome 
the capital city of this empire that had conquered uh, uh, many, many territories, including Israel. Um, And they looked out and searched for Rome to uh, spend the end of their days there. And it looks like both Paul and Peter were martyred for their faith in Rome. And that's kind of fitting because Rome was this uh, stronghold of people and power and wealth. It was like the convergence of all the different things that was going on in civilization could be found in this city of Rome. There's a, a saying, I don't know whether you've heard it, but sort of all roads lead to Rome. There is this significance of this city um, that uh, uh, meant that even these Christians sort of felt drawn to the middle of it. And funnily enough, Rome became very important for Christianity. It became important for, let me um, sort of moderate that, it became important for Christianity in the West. Christianity thrived elsewhere as well. You know, the uh, sort of the Roman Catholic Church, we know, is not the sum total of sort of church history uh, through the ages. Christianity flourished like all over uh, uh, Persia and it went off into Russia and, and, and uh, it, it was all over the place, but it had a, a peculiar significance in Rome. Now, by the third century, just like every other organization in the world, the church in Rome had um, accumulated prestige, influence, and structure. Kind of in the New Testament, you get kind of two church roles. You have deacons and elders, and these are the guys that navigate. By the third century, there's all sorts of other titles that people have thought, you know what, I'm going to call myself that, and um, I'm going to have another uh, position in the church. And it's funny, isn't it, how uh, people love titles, and loads of people uh, acquire different titles by the third century um, in the Christian church in Rome. Now, amongst all these different people, amongst all these different uh, uh, power structures in the church, there was a scholar and priest called Sibelius. Everyone say Sibelius. Sibelius. Okay, so there's this chap called Sibelius. Um, he wanted to know what God was like. And he wanted to know what God was like. And so he thought he would look at the Bible. He would look at scripture. And and he looked at the very same books of the Bible that that you've got in front of you. And so he wrestled with what is God like? What is he not like? And what is he like? Okay, And, and, and so you'd find, as he looked, that there seemed to be these three names for God that you find in the Bible. You find God the Father... God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now, Sibelius' writings haven't survived, but lots of people have talked about what he wrote and what he said. And Sibelius took the nature of God, and he took these three names and said, God is like water, because water can be in three different forms. I don't know if you know this, but water can be ice, well, like a solid. It can be water, Um, H2O can be that fluid, and H2O can be a gas. I see you've got um, a solid, a gas, and a fluid. Do you all understand that? Water can be those three forms. It's still the same chemical composition, but it's in these three different forms. 
Some of you are looking at being amused, and if you can't get that, then we're really going to struggle. But um, I'm going to press on. Hopefully, um, it will click. So you find H2O in these different forms. And Sibelius looked at the Bible, looked at Scripture, looked at the nature of God, looked at these three names of God, and said, this is what God is like. God is like H2O. Sometimes God is Father. Sometimes God is the Son to us. And sometimes God is Holy Spirit. Like, so perhaps at creation, God is Father, breathing forth stuff. Uh, perhaps in the New Testament, God is Son, where he dies for us. And now in the sort of church age, we encounter God as Holy Spirit. And uh, uh, God has these different modes that he relates to us. I wonder what we think about that. Sounds comprehensible, doesn't it? It sounds, okay, I can get my mind around a God who has these different modes. However, Sabellianism, or modalism as it's also called, um, it what did not um, survive very well. There was this guy called Tertullian who was like this uh, pillar of the church. He was a, a brainiac in every sense of the word. And he loved writing. And he wrote a shed load of stuff that said, Sibelius's idea is a good idea. It sounds really um, attractive, but it's utterly and completely wrong. And um, Tertullian said this in, in Latin. He wrote, tres persona, una substantia. And he said, so there are three persons, but there's a singular essence or substance. Some of you I've lost. I've lost you at the water being three different forms. Um, but you know what? Keep going. It, it will we'll get there. So Tertullian argued with Sibelius in the third century and said, you're wrong. God is three persons and one God. And he has one nature but the Father, Spirit, and Son are distinct and different from each other. And it was he that used the Latin term Trinitas. Everyone say Trinitas. That is Latin for a word that we know today. Anyone can guess what it, uh, we know it today as? Trinity. Okay, so it's a three-in-oneness. And this was Tertullian's position, and this was not Sibelius's position. 150 years later, the church had a council. Churches are really good at having meetings and arguments and councils. And church history is littered with uh, uh, know-it-alls gathering together and arguing about every conceivable aspect of scripture and church practice. And at the uh, uh, um, at a one council, 150 years later, uh, they argued about it and they were like, Sibelius, you're wrong. Tertullian, you the man. And so Tertullian's, uh, Tertullian's observation um, was adopted into the Nicene Creed, and all the Christians were like, yep, I sign up to what this guy was said. God does not exist in three different modes, sometimes Father, sometimes Spirit, sometimes Son, but he is three persons in one. If your mind is struggling with it, that's fine. Okay. There is a, um, a current theologian that I love. He's got a, um, like a hundred 
our sermon series on his systematic theology book, which I have devoured a couple of times, and uh, I just encourage you to look at it. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, And he says this, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. It is one of the things that uh, um, separates us from Mormonism and uh, uh, JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses. If you want to know why we're not them, one of the crucial things is this Trinitarian theology that we have. Some of you, oh, I didn't realise I had a Trinitarian theology. Well, you do if you're part of this church, because that's kind of uh, uh, what we believe. It's uh, on our website. And we're going to go through a little bit of what that means. You see, this Trinity, it affects everything. There is nothing in your faith that will not be touched by this thinking. It affects how you think of salvation. It affects how you worship and how you pray. Some of you are like, well, you are kind of living in an ivory tower and you want to bring some sort of uh, theology to us and it really doesn't touch my day to day. Well, it does. It touches how you read your Bibles. It touches uh, how you worship. When Tim leads us in particular songs, they are very deliberately written. They are not just, oh, God, we'd like to sing a song about you. There are very precise terms that are used that are um, exclusive of some things and adoptive of the other. So Peter, thank goodness, has this Trinitarian theology. And he begins his letter with this formula about Father, Son and Spirit. And he calls out each person and makes them important. And so I thought this morning that we would have a little look at the subject of the Trinity. And and hopefully I've sort of brought you through a little bit to um, suggest that it's important. If you were to look in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, and you don't have to, there is this climax of creation. You know the... The uh, stars have been flung into space. You've got this orb of the earth uh, rotating around the sun. It's sort of populated with um, sort of uh, platypus and other exotic animals and trees and all sorts of different landscapes. And God decides to bring the climax to creation by making humanity. And he says this. Let us make mankind in our image. Up to that point, God had very clearly talked about him and I, and he is singular. Suddenly, he's saying he's plural. And any modern psychologist would look at um, this, uh, these words and go, it's obviously uh, God has this disassociative identity disorder. You know, he's starting to talk about us, and he was talking about I, and we've got some sort of mental illness here. We will usher him into a white room with uh, uh, padded walls, and uh, uh, we can talk to him there. What is going on? How can God talk about being I, an individual at the start, and then by verse 26, he's talking about us? Who's us? Well, the rabbis and all their literature, and there's been a lot of literature written by rabbis, um, sort of these Jewish teachers on Genesis, they have argued for thousands of years as to how and what it means for God to use this plural term. 
Some say God is using the royal us, the royal we. Yes, we would like this to happen when he's talking about us. It's, um, they imagine he talks, uh, Father God kind of talks like Queen Elizabeth II. Well, that sort of language was not in use then. So that is kind of a modern interpretation that doesn't count. Others have been saying, let, when he says, let us create man in our image, he's talking to the angels. But the angels are quite different to humanity, and God is not talking to the angels. He seems to regard himself as plural. And it's troubling. And some of us are like, yeah, well, we'll just scrub that bit out. You know, we'll just correct God. Um, and edit it. But the problem is, in Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verse 8, God uses the plural for himself again. So it's not a one-off. And there is other things out, out there in the Old Testament where God seems to refer to himself both as singular and plural. How are you supposed to reconcile these two ideas? Well, just as the rabbi sort of struggled with this, it all becomes beautifully clear when uh, Jesus arrives. Um, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John the Baptist. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. So John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus gets baptized. And as he comes out, you have this strange situation where this man who claims to be God incarnate gets spoken to by a figure in the sky saying, you're dead good. And then this kind of glorified pigeon flies past. <laughs> and there's something going on there that is important because the gospel writers all record it and make a deliberate point of it as if there is something significant going on as if we get an insight as what it means when God says, let us create mankind in our image. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. So Jesus is launching his disciples into the world. You know, he's sort of catapulting them into society and saying, tell them all about me and start churches everywhere you go, including Bubush Crawley. And it says this in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I command you, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus sets the tone for what discipleship will look like as it multiplies throughout the earth. And he says, part of that will be baptism. And some of you guys that hate water, that don't like public displays of anything, kind of wish Jesus had put in something else there, but that is what Jesus wanted as part of um, this process of discipleship. And as part of this um, mechanism of discipleship, in this Uh, process of baptism as someone goes down there is to be into the name of father spirit and son and you have these three names brought out this is the us that we find in the old testament it's a bit murky and unclear and then is brought out crystal clear in what jesus has to say and do So then the question follows, are these persons, Father, Spirit and Son, are they each a God in their own right or are they different forms of the same God like Sibelius taught? Well, you have some more information if you look through scripture. You find that Jesus prays to the Father and the Father seems totally and utterly God of himself. And that's why some of the sects uh, will sort of devalue Jesus as some come inferior to this God who he prays to. The problem is, Jesus is happy to call himself I am, which is kind of like this Old Testament term for God. And he's happy to receive worship. There is no other human or angel that accepts worship other than Jesus. And elsewhere we find that Jesus is totally and utterly God. And then, in both uh, Luke's book, Acts, and Paul's letter, we find that the Holy Spirit, which sounds a bit like the force, or a messenger, we find that he's a person, that he feels stuff, that he can be grieved, that He is powerful and he is totally God as well. And so you find Father, Son and Spirit are all God in and of themselves. And you find God is three persons and each person is individually God. And some of you are like, you know what, I wish I hadn't come tonight, this morning. You know, it's just too much. I was hoping for something a little bit uplifting, go and be nice to people. And now we're talking about stuff that seems to blow my mind. Well, just in case you thought, you know, I reckon still I can pull this together. And then later on, just in case you're in any doubt, um, both uh, Paul and uh, Jesus' brother James says, let me paint you a picture of God and let me assure you that God is one. So God is one, God is three persons, but God is one. What on earth are you supposed to do with that? And that, It's what the church have wrestled with 
for 2,000 years. That is what the church has tried to bring words to and give sentences to that kind of make clear what is true and what isn't true. Have any of you looked at your questionnaires? Because I'm going to give you some answers. Because this idea of the Trinity is important. The idea of the Trinity is which stops us being part of the sex and um, cults that are elsewhere. This orthodoxy, or right thinking, is something that we champion. It's been on our website from uh, the very beginning in 2005 when we set it up. This trinity has been there. Because it is not something that you can be interested in or not bother with. It's not a negotiable extra. It is foundational to this Christian faith. It is something that divides us from people who are in error. And who wants to be in error, eh? Okay. Let's find out who of you are heretics and who of you are orthodox. Question one. There is one God. True or false? Excellent. Well done. Give yourself a point. Question two. God is one person. Excellent. You're doing really well. Um, Question three. The Trinity is made up of the Father, Spirit and Son. Some of you are saying, oh, perhaps I am orthodox and okay, you know. Perhaps I'm going to make it through. The word Trinity can be found in the Bible. It's not in there. No, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's, um, so Tertullian came up with this uh, uh, word Trinitas and he used it, but it is not in the Bible, which is those who would detract from this idea. So it's not in the Bible, so you're just making it up. But let's go on. The concept of the Trinity can be found in the Bible, true or false? True. So the word isn't in there, but all the ideas behind it are. In the Trinity, each person is equally and fully God. Excellent. That's the right answer. True. Question eight. Jesus was just a man empowered by God. Anyone else? False. Very good. There are those that think that Jesus was just a man and kind of God adopted him to be uh, the son of God. Question nine. Jesus was half man and half God. Oh, so what do we reckon? So is he half man and half God? Oh, some, some of the uh, more experienced guys are stepping in and go, don't you worry, guys, it's false. Jesus is not half man and half God. He is understood as to be fully man and fully God. Well, you're like, well, how's that possible? Well, we'll leave that for another day. Um, Jesus was brought forth by the Father. So it's false. You're an Arianist if you believe that uh, Jesus was uh, brought forth. If he was created at any point, Jesus has always existed with the Father and the Son since eternity. Question 11. Jesus only appeared to have a physical body. Excellent. No uh, docetists here. That's really good. Um, Question 12. The Holy Spirit is a force. 
So we had some Macedon uh, uh, Mas Macedonians here, and uh, the Holy Spirit is actually fully a person in the Trinity. So he's not a force, he is a he. So uh, you'll find that in our sort of worship and discussion that we don't just want a force here, we invite the Holy Spirit as a person here. And thank you for those that are actually saying their answers rather than those that are too ashamed or too ignorant to say anything <laughs> at all. Um, question 13. The Trinity is made up of three persons. Excellent. Uh, question 14. Jesus had two natures, one human and one divine. So, church over 2,000 years has decided that's true. Um, and you are, um, you are guilty of Eutychianism if you think that Jesus had sort of one nature. So, he had this divine nature and human nature. This is the question. Uh, that I would get wrong. Jesus had two natures, but one will. So it's false. I make no uh, 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 problems with anyone that gets that wrong. So I didn't realise that. So the church has decided, looked at all the evidence, and said, you know, Jesus had a divine will and a human will, and, and they are separate. Father, um, question 16, Father, Spirit, and Son are different names for the one person of God. So that is false, and that's Sibelianism, and that's what Tertullian kicked into touch um, in the third century. Um, God is three persons and one um, essence. Question 17, Trinity is made of three beings. So our language, as Orthodox Christians, is that the Father, Spirit, and Son are three persons, but they are not three distinct beings, which would make us sort of uh, believe in three different gods that we would be praying to. So you have this tension in our Christian language of God is one and three persons. Question 18. The Son and the Spirit are subordinate to the Father in their essence or nature. You know, God the Father's top gun and the others have to do what he says um, because they're inferior. Yeah, because they're all God. They are all entirely God of themselves. Each can be worshipped and applauded and understood as the fullness of God. Amen. Question 19. The persons of the Trinity... Notice I didn't say beings. The persons of the Trinity have distinct roles. It's true. They have distinct roles. Question number 20. Some analogies can accurately explain the Trinity. True or false? Excellent. That's the 20. I hope you really did uh, well or that you've learnt something at least. Um, because it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a good thing to be able to know what you believe. Because it, this faith that we have is not just a nebulous feeling or just, uh, just something that we've signed up to. But it's a structure of thought and ideas that, that we can say, you know, this is what truth looks like and this is what falsehood looks like. So thank you for bearing with me in that. And all those of you who are honest enough to give the answers you'd put down. 
So on the very uh, most basic level for a Christian, God is three persons. Each person is fully God. But despite that, there is one God. Peter knows this. And he uses it in verse 2 of his letter. And he kind of helps us in one of the questions by saying to us that each, me- each person of the Trinity has something different to contribute to a Christian's life. They all work to the same end. They are all uh, God, but they have a different contribution to make. So to start with, we get God the Father. I love the fact that the first person of the Trinity is called Father. You know, the, uh, in my life, the, the term Father is a very positive one, and, and that is what is held up as here. Everything positive you've ever experienced or seen uh, about fatherhood, that's the first person of the Trinity. And he comes from that position of love and care. It's not the first person of the Trinity isn't the emperor or isn't the captain, isn't the, a military leader or a drill sergeant, um, but he is father. And he comes from that position of care and love. And Peter tells us that he carefully selects those and embraces those that he would call his own. He looks across his creation and says, you're mine. And some of us, if not all of us, should feel uh, greatly encouraged by that and appreciated and valued. That first person in the Trinity sort of calls us his own. And that motivation is love. And so our salvation is not random and it does not depend on our fragile shoulders. Hopefully um, we're encouraged by that. You know, your survival to the end of this faith does not count on you trying really, really hard, but it comes from God who chose you. Redemption, that choice you made to follow Jesus, can be traced back to your heavenly Father who eagerly anticipated your arrival from the uh, before anything even began. And I really like that picture. And this is what Peter offers us. You know, God as Father, look forward to your salvation. Secondly, um, we find in Peter's letter that we are not, lonely soldiers on a deserted outpost without backup. You know, we're not on our own trying to get through life without any help. We have this Holy Spirit that Peter talks about. And the Holy Spirit brings warmth and reassurance and says, you're mine. And he points out evil in our lives when we are uh, out of order He pulls us back in. He drives us towards good, like goodness and truth and righteousness. He goes, go that way. That is good for you. That's going to uh, create in you something divine. And he gives good gifts. And we heard a little bit of those in the worship. And he cultivates fruit. Things like peace 
and joy and patience and self-control. These are the things that the Spirit's in you to bring out. And thirdly, Peter mentions Jesus, God incarnate, Emmanuel. This is our resurrected Lord. And we hear him and we obey him and we live carefully now to draw near him for now and eternity. And we find Father, Spirit and Son working perfectly in unison as one God, three persons for our salvation. And I find a beauty and harmony in that. Um, that is just really helpful. The theology of the Trinity is not a weapon just to exclude the heretics. Some of you did not get 100% on your tests. But it is not something that we're going to beat you over and just sort of uh, cast you out and say, well, you are wrong, that's it. The theology of the Trinity is something to help us get on the right track, to see things properly, to get a clearer understanding of what Scripture is and a clearer understanding of our position towards God. There is no room for smugness for um, those who did really well in their tests. The theology, and I, I just find this really compelling, the theology of the Trinity, it's a divine reality. It is us using our clumsy words to describe God as he is. And we will find in that triune God infinite treasure. God who is infinite, these three persons, one God that have been living together in perfect unity uh, for eternity. We can look in them and find something to blow our minds. We can imagine a billion analogies for our triune God. God is like water. God is like a man who is sort of son and father and husband. Uh, God is like all of them. Every single picture, every single analogy, every single metaphor, every single simile. They fail before this idea of God as revealed in Scripture. I wonder what else is like that. What else in your life cannot be adequately explained by pointing to something else? God is the only, is the only, God is the only one who cannot be properly, adequately summarised by anything else. There is nothing like God. And, and doesn't that seem right? If God is God and created everything and is singular in his ways and deeds, doesn't it seem right that there is nothing to shine a light on him? There is nothing that can describe him properly. There is no word, no picture, no other thing in nature that can properly encapsulate his being. Isn't that something that we can worship? Our understanding fails in the presence of God, but nonetheless we continue worshipping. And that sounds like God, doesn't it? If your 
preconceptions, your word pictures, your powers of language, if in the presence of God they stutter and fail and go kaput. Doesn't that sound like the God of creation? So I suggest this morning that we get to pray to the Father in awe, in that absolute reverence that comes from, I don't actually fully understand you, God. We worship the Son out of delight. Jesus, you're amazing. You took on flesh, and I don't know how that worked out. But you're pretty beautiful, and the things you said, I kind of treasure quite a bit. And the Holy Spirit, who we often experience, saying worship, yeah, oh, you know, I, I appreciate you're around, Holy Spirit. You know, um, I can't always explain, you can't always say what's going on, but I'm glad you're there. Each and every interaction with the Father, Spirit and Son is part of our relationship with him. We were never intended for superficial, one-dimensional relationships. We were originally created for this multifaceted, deep-going-on-deeper relationship with Father, Spirit and Son. Something that will satisfy your soul like nothing else. Those who neglect the Trinity or make fun of it, they're not just wrong, but I fear they mutilate God. They make him something he's not. They put him in a box that he was never uh, there for. When you deny the Trinity, you start, I think, to have problems with creation, with scripture, and the revelation found in Jesus. The Trinity we can't get around it, friends, is the singular explanation of what God is like from Scripture. And we may struggle with it, and we may not like sermons on it, and uh, I understand that. But it is incredibly important and pivotal to this Christian faith. And it is one that Christians have argued about for 2,000 years because it is so critical to our understanding of everything else. So this morning... I just suggest that we, like Peter, get a little bit excited about this triune God and realise that he's to be enjoyed and prayed to and worshipped and revered. Not because he's easy to think about, but because he is God and he is incredibly complex and hard to get your head around. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Peter's embracing of the Father and Spirit Son in his letter. And Lord God, I pray, as we struggle with the idea of a triune God, that we would allow the language and teaching and thoughts of scripture to lead us into a deeper relationship with you. Lord God, we understand that truth is really important part of our faith. And Lord God, I pray that we would be really good at right thinking with the help of the Holy Spirit.
Uh, Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.